In a small city in Germany, activist Wafa Ali Mustafa stood outside a courthouse for the first trial of crimes against humanity by the Syrian government. The first trial of individuals charged with state-sponsored torture by Assad regime started in Germany. And the only thing that, that I couldn't help but think about is how much I wish my dad was here with me to witness this moment. Wafa's father was forcefully disappeared in Damascus in 2013. For almost eight years now, we've been trying to get one single information. Is he alive or not? So today, on the 10th anniversary of Syria's uprising, we're hearing Wafa's story and asking if a courtroom in Germany is where Syrians can find justice. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Every time that Wafa goes to the courthouse, she brings her father's photo, along with dozens of others. They're a symbol of the tens of thousands of detainees lost in Syria's prisons in the last decade. But the fear of disappearance has haunted people for much longer. In Syria, there's a famous saying, the walls have ears. It's a warning not to discuss anything that could cause a family trouble from the government. But in Wafa's family, her father defied that fear. I grew up with my mom, my dad, and my two sisters. My dad allowed us, my sisters and myself, to be part of political debates, to learn, to watch the news. Wafa and her father Ali had a very close relationship, and they grew closer as they became more active in anti-government protests. The chain of events that led to his disappearance began in 2013, two years after the uprising began, when one of Wafa's best friends was killed in a government rocket attack. After that, I actually collapsed. It was the one thing that actually broke me after two years of protesting in every single possible way. I wasn't at some point even able to walk anymore because I was devastated. So Wafa's dad came to Damascus from their hometown to care for her. The collapse I had and the amount of mercy and love my dad showed me during those three months changed everything. Our relationship became something that I cannot describe in words. Wafa's father convinced her to return to their hometown while he would stay in Damascus. The day he disappeared, Wafa's mother was supposed to join him there to see him for the first time in a few months. So she cooked his favorite food and she went to Damascus. And 15 minutes before she arrived, she called my dad and my dad said, I cleaned the house, everything is perfect and I'm just waiting for you. 15 minutes later, uh, my mom arrived and she called my dad and he never responded till today. Wafa says the only thing they know is that a neighbor saw a group of armed men taking Wafa's father and a friend of his down the stairs. That friend was killed by torture in one of the security branches in Damascus. But Wafa's father seemed to vanish. We've paid bribes. We've tried connections and connections of connections. But unfortunately, nothing worked. 
And obviously the government did not and will not let us know because this is why they use detention against us because they want to break us and they want to silence us. Wafa has not been silent. She's continued speaking out even as she left Syria, found refuge in Berlin and went back to school. And she kept her father with her. For some reason, years ago, I started treating my father's picture that is uh, beside my bed as some kind of like physical manifestation of his. Which brings us back to the trial. That's the photo that Wafa decided to bring with her back to the city of Koblenz. I said, okay, why don't I take my dad and go to Koblenz so we can witness this moment together? And other Syrians in Germany joined her. So we went first time to the city of Koblenz that is seven hours from Berlin where I reside uh, with 61 photos of 61 people. And we put the photos in front of the courthouse and I sat between those photos alone holding my father's photo but surrounded by the photos of the other 60 people who are still unfortunately missing till today in Syria. Wafa didn't actually expect the reaction she received. She said Germans passing the courthouse were shocked to find that the people in the photos were all missing and that their family members knew nothing about them. She also heard from people with family detained in Syria. The amount of gratitude and the amount of hope we saw in people's eyes and voices and messages was just heartbreaking because it shows how helpless people are and how tragic is the reality that they are living and that I am actually living. Many of those people are looking to the trial in Koblenz for hope. We'll come back to Wafa, but to hear more about the trial, I spoke to another person who's been there almost every day, but inside the courthouse. Hana Al-Hitami is a journalist who's covered the trial for Al Jazeera and for a weekly podcast. It's called Branch 251. There is one name that is associated with this trial that is inescapable and infamous among Syrians as well, and that is Branch 251. What is Branch 251? So Branch 251 is a security branch in Damascus. It's, uh, it belongs to the General Secret Service. The reason why everyone's talking about this branch is because here in Koblenz, we're having a trial that is concerning crimes that happened in that branch, detainees who were arrested in that branch and tortured in that branch and perhaps even killed in that branch. So I guess Branch 251 is an example of the kind of torture and uh, detention conditions that have been happening all over Syria in the last years. So who are the defendants and what are they accused of? At the beginning of the trial, there were two defendants. One of them is a higher-ranking officer, Anwar R, and one was a lower-ranking officer, Yed A. In Germany, defendants are not referred to by their full names, and that's the convention Hannah's using with these two men. They both worked for Syrian intelligence, but in very different capacities. First, Anwar Raslan, who was the higher-ranking officer. He was accused of 58 killings, 4,000 cases of torture and cases of sexual violence which means that he was responsible for them in his capacity as a head of investigations, not that he committed them with his own like hands. Iyad al-Qarib was a lower-ranking member of the Syrian intelligence service. 
He was accused of arresting 30 protesters and taking them to the prison of Branch 251, where they would later then be tortured or perhaps even killed. Both of them defected from the Secret Service in 2012, and both of them ended up as refugees in Germany. They both prompted the investigations against them in different ways by talking a bit too openly about their past with the German authorities. And so the federal German police started to investigate against them. So they actually implicated themselves, and, and that is how they ended up on trial. Exactly. Yet A, at his asylum hearing, talked about his past in the Secret Service, because at an asylum hearing you have to talk about what's your past, why are you here, why do you want to be accepted as a refugee. And so he talked about that, and that prompted the investigation against him, whereas Anwar R., the higher-ranking officer, actually went to the German police because he thought that the Syrian Secret Service was following him in Germany and he got paranoid and he asked the police for help and then they said, wait a second, you worked for the Secret Service yourself and then they started investigating him. Wow. It sounds like the plot of a movie and yet it is all true. Why isn't this trial happening at the International Criminal Court or another international tribunal why does Germany have jurisdiction over crimes that happen in Syria? The trial cannot happen at the International Criminal Court because Syria is not a member state and the UN Security Council could refer the case to the ICC, but they can't because of the Russian veto. So for that reason, a national court at the moment is the only court that can really deal with the cases. Why Germany can do that is because of universal jurisdiction. Prosecutors secured the trial under Germany's universal jurisdiction laws, which allows courts to prosecute crimes against humanity committed anywhere in the world. Universal jurisdiction cases have also been filed against Syrian officials in Austria, Sweden and France by about 100 refugees. If the crimes are crimes like genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, so the most severe crimes that are said to concern all of humanity and not be uh, restricted to national borders. The trial has become an official record of the torture and detention faced by many Syrians who sought asylum in Germany. I asked Hannah what some of the key moments of the trial were for her. All the witness testimonies that come from survivors of detention are always very moving. We hear usually one witness per day. Sometimes it's more than one. Sometimes one takes more than one day. One person that I really remember, I actually saw him outside the court building and, and he looked like he was a young man around 30. He looked like anyone who could be a friend of mine. And then when he was in the courtroom and he started talking about what had happened to him and it was one of the most brutal experiences that we have heard it seemed like at the end of the time that he spent in prison and later in a military hospital, he was not much more than blood and flesh. He was almost dead and they left him outside on the street. By coincidence, he was found by a taxi driver who, who took him home and took him to hospital. And then his family quickly took him out of the country. And it is sometimes so hard to imagine that someone who went through such horrible experiences could still be a human being that you can listen to in court and you can talk to and that they're able to live a little bit of a normal life still, um, that always amazes me. Yeah. So what were the defendants like in court? Iyad al-Gharib, the defendant who was just convicted in February, 
fell asleep in one part of the trial, and he was visibly emotional in another part. What do you remember about that? I think the defendants are very different. Anwar, the higher-ranking officer, he sits in this courtroom almost as if he was still the head of investigations. He takes a lot of notes. He listens very carefully. Sometimes he nods and uh, sometimes he looks skeptically or he smiles. And you feel like he sees himself as like part of the investigation team in this case. It's like he's trying to actually clear up this injustice, mm. uh, which I sometimes find a little bit amusing, you know, observing him. Whereas Yad A is more uneducated. And I think because of his low rank and his early defection, I feel that maybe he never really understood how it was possible that he was in this courtroom and listening to all these testimonies because most of the testimonies didn't concern him personally. Uh, they were more about the general situation in the branch. None of the witnesses knew him. None of the witnesses recognized him. I haven't talked to him, so I don't know what his feelings are, but I just felt that sometimes he didn't really know what all that had to do with him. But Hannah said at the same time, he also did get emotional at other parts of the trial. Like the day that prosecutors showed countless photos of people who died brutally from the torture that took place in serious prisons. He later wrote a letter and submitted it to the court where he said that his whole body was shaking that day and he was devastated when he saw all those victims. And when the defense read out their final plea for him, he was crying and it seemed, you know, he was very moved by the fact that he was being accused of such atrocities. Anwar's trial is still ongoing, but Iyad received the first sentence in the trial last month. Hana was there the day of Iyad's verdict. I actually arrived at the courtroom at 6 in the morning, but there was already a long line because many people had already started queuing at 5 in the morning to get in. There were a lot of Syrian observers, NGOs, journalists, opposition figures. And we then entered the courtroom and the verdict was read out. A court in Germany has today sentenced a former Syrian intelligence official to four and a half years in prison. In the first verdict of crimes against humanity in the 10-year-old civil war. They always read one sentence in German and then it's translated into Arabic. I heard the verdict and then the defendant himself heard the verdict a bit later because of course he also speaks mostly Arabic. So I was trying to see how he would react, but he was very neutral. He actually seemed really worn out, tired, just resigned in a way. Hannah said that for many observers at the court that day, the reaction was conflicted. People were relieved a criminal court had defined what has been happening in Syria as crimes against humanity. But some people would have liked a longer sentence. Others felt one person shouldn't be held responsible for a government's actions. And somewhere in the middle was Wafa. It took her a long time to decide how she felt about it. To be honest, when I first learned about the verdict, I felt a bit frustrated that someone who was proven to abet crimes against the humanity was sentenced to four years and a half in prison. While my dad, who's never been clothed before a court, who's never been charged with anything we know of, has been disappeared now for almost eight years. But I also know that this is beyond one man's sentence. And this is 
just a beginning and the real war criminals are still unfortunately in Syria committing crimes against the humanity. Wafa says on this anniversary of the uprising, what she finds herself thinking about is the demand for justice. Ten years after the protests, we're only now seeing a shred of accountability for what ensued. For 10 years now, we've been chanting in every protest that we want justice. The justice that I wanted is this theory, this concept that I've read about for years. But I've never practiced justice. And this is the first time I am confronted with some kind of justice. And I need to decide whether this is what I want or not. What I'm sure of is that I don't want revenge. Wafa said she had a moment of truth when she saw the other defendant, whose trial will continue. I saw him, like, sitting. There is a glass of water beside him. He has his own translator. His health looks fine. Obviously, he hasn't been tortured. And I was wondering, like, in that specific moment, is this what I want? And I believe that in that moment, I made my decision that I do not actually want him to be tortured. I don't want his family to live what I'm living. I'm actually grateful that he is living what we demanded for 10 years now. Democracy, justice, freedom in the state of law. I believe that there are so many of us who still believe that our hope is not an illusion. And we all know by now that freedom is difficult and slow, but it's not impossible. And this is why I continue doing what I am doing on daily basis, because I want to secure my dad's freedom so we might have the chance to protest together again one day for a better Syria. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Priyanka Tilve, Nagin Oliai, Amy Walters, Dina Kispe, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Steve Lack mixed this episode. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is the executive producer of The Take. We'll be back on Wednesday.